Game Mitchell Meets, a series of unique interviews with prominent people in public life. These interviews go beyond the normal soundbite and provide real analysis of issues in public affairs. I'm Gay Mitchell and today I'm talking to former Taoiseach and former EU ambassador to the United States, John Bruton, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Treaty of Rome. John, you were elected to the Dáil when you were barely 22 years uh, of age um, and Liam Cosgrave's government then you served in as a minister not long after that um, and he was the first president of the uh, European Council. How much did the whole European scene play in your political development? Well, a lot. I, I was elected to the Dáil in 1969 and then uh, the negotiations commenced for us to join the European Union. Uh, I think it would have been in 71 or 72. Uh, and uh, they the, the, uh, came to a conclusion in 72 and there was a referendum uh, in Ireland to decide whether we would ratify the treaty allowing us to join the European Union. And I suppose it was my first experience as a TD, I was a TD already at that time, of participating in a, in a referendum. And uh, I, I remember you know, getting all sorts of information, uh, which unfortunately is becoming sort of current again, as to what sort of tariffs we'd have to pay if we were outside the European Union. And Britain had joined because at that time Britain was going to join. So our choice was we joined too. Uh, and we would... If we were out of the European Union, I got a long list of all the very heavy duties that would be imposed on ex- Irish goods being exported to Britain, uh, which would then be in the European Union, because they'd have to charge us the European tariffs. Uh, now we are in the situation where the reverse of the case is occurring, where uh, they they may have to pay similar tariffs to get goods into Ireland if they leave the European Union. Um so that was one of my first, uh, my first campaigns, uh, so to speak, and uh, I remember it very well. Um, we were already members of the European Union then by the time I became a parliamentary secretary uh, in March of 1973. Um, and, but I, I was in education and in industry and commerce. So I didn't really have much direct involvement with European matters uh, during those four years. But the Treaty of the Treaty of Rome, of course, is what gave the opportunity for what is now the European Union to develop, and we're celebrating its fiftieth anniversary. So, how important was that treaty, and why are we why are we marking it now? Well, the Treaty of Rome, I think, probably had its origin in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, when, with the very strong encouragement of the United States of America which wanted the European economy, which had been devastated by the war, to invest in itself. And the US wanted to invest in it too through the Marshall Plan. But they said to the European countries, we'll only get a good return on our investment if you do this together, if you build a a common market within Western Europe so that the return on any investment through exports between the different countries, will be maximised. Uh, and in a way, it was with that encouragement that the uh, efforts were made first to start the European coal and steel community, to pool the coal and steel industries, the, if you like, the war-making industries, 
to pool those initially. Uh, Britain was offered the opportunity to join that, uh, but didn't. Uh, then Labour government decided that it wouldn't join it. Uh, but Britain took part in some of the meetings that prepared for the Treaty of Rome, which was a wider form of common market, not just confined to coal and steel. But eventually, um, they decided not to go ahead. They pulled out. And the six countries that stayed um, and agreed on it, um, uh, France and Germany, Belgium, Luxembourg, the Netherlands and Italy, uh, formed the Treaty of Rome, which founded the European Union. And that Treaty of Rome had not just economic goals, but political goals. It proposed to build an ever closer union of the people and of the states of, of, of Europe. Uh, and it built essentially a structure of peace in Europe. And I've used the analogy many times trying to explain why an economic union is a structure of peace. And the analogy I've used is of two boxers in a clinch, that they're so close together, uh, they're so intertwined with one another economically that neither of them has the room to swing a punch, even if they wanted to. So that, if you like, that's, I think, the underlying idea of the European Union, that it binds the countries together economically so they, they can never go into conflict with one another. Well, that's a very good analogy. Uh, if, if It's really the foundation of the European Union. That was the foundation stone. And it came so... So soon after the end of the Second World War, I remember sitting beside you in the European Parliament, you were answering a question and you said, I think the figure you gave was 60 million Europeans killed each other in the first part of the last century. That doesn't take into account probably double that number in the world because of wars that started in Europe. Uh, I can, Professor Kenneth Minogue said that the history of Europe is preparing for war, being at war and overcoming war. So as our Memories of the Treaty of Rome and the war and all of that fade. Are, are we in danger of, re, of repeating the, 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 the problems? I, do, I think we are. I think that unfortunately, and this is part of the cycle of human error, that we forget the lessons of the past. It takes maybe a generation and a half or two generations to forget these lessons completely because I suppose we do listen to our parents but we probably either don't have the opportunity to or don't pay that much attention to our grandparents. And in that sense, when it comes to you know, booms and busts in the economy or big mistakes in politics like the extreme nationalism that we're seeing now, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago because too many people 20 years ago would have remembered that nationalism in its extreme form led to war. Uh, but now a lot of those people who remember that very well 20 years ago are no longer with us and the rest of us have probably lived uh, relatively peaceful lives and have seen wars as something on television that takes place on the other side of the world and are not something that could ever happen here, so to speak. But of course they could happen here uh, if we were to be foolish enough to set up structures of antagonism instead of the structures of peace that the European Union is. The, the, it's, it's really all to do with interdependence and that being the prerequisite for um, for prosperity, having that peace and stability. But um, the, the, the French poet and, and philosopher Paul Valéry said that Western civilization rests on three foundations, uh, Greek intellectual curiosity, Roman order and Judeo-Christian spirituality. And his fellow countryman, Daniel Robbs, around the time of the 
signing of the Treaty of Rome said that if any one of those should collapse, the whole edifice will collapse. Is that also something we're in danger of forgetting? So far, I think, to take those three in order, I think um, the structure of law is fairly well preserved, I think. Um, Although you do see, you know, people threatening the judiciary from time to time and that sort of thing. But I think, generally speaking, the rule of law uh, is is, uh, fairly solid. But, of course, you do have abuse of power within the law and all of that, and that has to be investigated and rooted out if it occurs. As far as order is concerned, again, I think you can't really have law without order. You must have order first. I mean, order, in a way, is the precondition for the enforcement of law. And a law that's not enforced is worthless. So uh, the preservation of order is very important. Um, we, we have, I think, in Europe, pretty good record as far as maintaining order is concerned. We've ha- not had anything really on the scale of the sort of riots we've seen in, in, in the United States. Although some of the things that are happening in the suburbs in Paris now are in the last couple of weeks are worrying, really. But generally speaking, order is maintained. The third quotation is about the Christian uh, spirituality. Um, I think that is at risk in Europe. Um, It's at risk uh, because, in a way, society has rapidly urbanised. Society has become more anonymous. People are more, uh, therefore, I think because of those things, living their lives for themselves or for their immediate family rather than as part of a wider community, which was more the case when we lived in a rural life. And I think that has weakened uh, the the sort of hold of, of religious belief on people. And I think when religious belief declines, it'll take a full generation for people to realise what they've lost in terms of providing a sort of moral moral guide for people. I think the idea that you can use the law to enforce virtue is impractical. You need some other force that will encourage people to behave in a in a good way rather than a bad way. And that's where religious belief is is so important. And it is important, I think, to to law and order that there be a wider belief system that sustains good behaviour. And uh, there is is a risk. I think there's a risk in that. Um, We've seen it in Ireland, I suppose, too, uh, the the, the evidence of the decline in this. Just before we turn to the the effect of um, the Treaty of Rome on the now enlarged European Union. Let's just talk about Ireland for for a moment. When we joined the European Union, what is now the European Union, our per capita income was less than 60% of the then nine uh, uh, member states. Our roads, compared to the roads in Northern Ireland, were were really third world. I remember when I became a TD first in 1981, I had a thousand people in Crumlin alone who had been on the waiting list for up to five years waiting for a phone. There was no equality. If a woman married and she was a civil servant, she had to to resign. Um, And 
third level education wasn't really available to a lot of people. Our population was stagnant. Do we need to be reminded of that? And if so, how do we remind people of that? Do we take it for granted after a while? Well, I think we do. I, 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 I get the sense that people are increasingly unhappy, uh, even though look, objectively they're considerably better off than they were at least 15 years ago. A lot better off. Um, but people are discontented. And that is, I think, that their expectation became one of, of incomes rising at about 3 to 4% per annum. And when incomes are only rising at 1% per annum or maybe are stagnant, that is regarded as a very bad situation. But also I think the problems are not distributed evenly. Some people have substantial debts. Um, the level of debt in this country is, is, is very substantial private debt alongside the government debt. And of course that burden of debt is not evenly spread. Some people don't have any debts. Uh, so those who have debts feel very unhappy. Whereas those who have have money in the bank or complain that they're not getting enough interest on their money. So you have sort of a, a maldistribution, if you like, of burdens and opportunities. And people, I suppose, in a way, are incre- increasingly inclined to think of their own situation uh, rather than to look at the global um, situation. We, we were just an island behind an island. and we're very impoverished. But it's very hard to get that message across I, get, I find it hard to explain to my children, for example, yeah. that this is the way things were and we need to protect to ensure we, we don't fall back on that. I, I think it, Why Did Ireland Stay So Poor For So Long was the title of a book, I think, that was written um, by um, Professor Garvin. And uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting thesis. His thesis basically was that f- from the 1930s onwards up to the 1950s, a whole protection, we had protectionism, we didn't have open competition coming into our market. And that, of course, made everything expensive and made people poorer and had less choice in life. But apart from that, it also allowed vested interests to develop great positions of strength in the Irish economy so that basically nothing happened that would threaten those vested interests, whether it was the vested interests in the airline industry or the vested interests in the protected manufacturing sectors or you know, vested interests in, in any area, just weren't challenged. And then, you know, starting with the Anglo-Irish Free Trade Agreement in 1966 and then with the membership of the European Union, we began very belatedly, probably 20 years later than anyone else, to open up our economy uh, to trade with other countries, to extend free third level, second level education for the first time in 1960, I think it was 66, uh, which was a hugely important decision. Something that we did 20 years later than every other European country. We were really far behind in extending second, edu- second level education. Uh, so what happened, I think, in the period of the 70s and the 80s the 90s, was 30 years of catching up that was necessary because of a previous 30 years of artificially slow growth, artificially restricted growth from foolish policies pursued from, I suppose, I would say from 1932 up to 1956-57. Can we turn to the 
broader scene in in um, in Europe. I, I I saw the Berlin Wall for the first time in 1980, and there are a few things in my life that had such an effect. The idea that from East Berlin to Vladivostok, there were something like 25 countries literally walled in. Um, then three Soviet states, Lithuania, Estonia and uh, uh, Latvia. Uh, Latvia, joined and eight other communist-dominated states joined the European Union. Eleven of them came in very quickly after the Berlin Wall fell, came down in 80. 89.90. Now, this is still very much a work in progress. They're catching up. But we depend on them being in for our stability as well as their stability. We need to explain that more. Yes, I, I think if you look at the history of Europe in the 1930s uh, and in the 1920s, um, after the First World War, a huge number of new democracies were established in Europe. All those countries you mentioned, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Poland, Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, Romania, they all started off as democracies. But because there was no sort of structure binding them together, there were no rules of the road, and because there were lots of nationalistic uh, ambitions unfulfilled, most of those countries who gained their independence more or less some of them at the same time as we did, they had ceased to be democracies within five to ten years. And by 1939, the only democracy left in Central and Eastern Europe was Czechoslovakia, uh, which was extinguished then at Munich. Uh, And that, I think, shows you that without some structure, democracy uh, doesn't necessarily survive. Uh, And it didn't survive in these very countries. Now that these countries of Central and Eastern Europe are incorporated in the European Union, they have incentives to remain democratic. And that's why it's very important, in my view, that the European Commission take a tough line with Poland. If Poland is engaging in practices as far as its constitutional separation of powers is concerned, that undermine the courts in Poland, that's not compatible with Poland being a member in good standing of the European Union. And similarly, if, if Hungary were to do the same, or if we were to do the same, it's very important that the European Union have the courage to impose its standards and to, to impose penalties if its standards are not uh, respected. Which they did in Austria at one point in the yeah. recent past? Yes, they did. Um, the, I'm sure you found this yourself. Um, the one country that most of those countries wanted to emulate when they came into the European Union was Ireland. And they would spend a lot of time asking, how did you do it? Did you did you find that from your various travels? I, d- I did. In fact, I remember going to Romania and uh, giving the explanation that I just gave to you about how we'd spent 30 years getting things wrong and then uh, we started getting things right about 1966 and it took us another 30 years to get to the overnight success that we became in 1994. Uh, And they were extremely, um, shall we say, disappointed to learn that it took that long because they reckoned that, you know, Ireland had to have some secret formula that once you applied it within two years, you had a hugely booming economy. And of course, that was not true. Um, It is truthfully a pure accident that the Celtic Tiger took up when I was Taoiseach, but it, 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 it did. that is actually what happened. But it wasn't anything to do with that. It yeah. was to do with 
30 years of work by previous governments, which, uh, you know, we didn't get in the way of when it started to yield these tremendous results. Can we turn to our, to our nearest neighbour, uh, Britain? Um, immigration seems to be a big issue for them, not just from Europe, but from the former, former Commonwealth uh, uh, countries. Um, and whatever can be said about Britain, and, you know, a lot of people have difficulties with their big next door neighbour. It was their blood, sweat, tear and toil which really contributed to the defeat of Hitler and with the Americans ensuring that there was the possibility of of, uh, of freedom. So what's your what's your take on the background, background to uh, Brexit given what Britain did do in in the Second World War and, and also uh, what do you think of the future of, of EU-British uh, relations? Where will they where will they end? Um, I think it's 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 really very disappointing that um, in the referendum campaign that took place uh, to decide whether Britain would leave the European Union and throw aside the 40 years of rule making and uh, common work that they had engaged in with the other member states of the European Union that before that referendum, that fateful decision on the 23rd of June that more effort was not made by the the government and the other politicians in Britain to remind people that Britain has a deep vested interest in the peace, order and democratic governance of Europe going back long before the creation of the European Union. Um, People in the United Kingdom should remember that they went to war in 1914 to defend the neutrality of Belgium. And now they want to introduce rules to prevent Belgians coming to live and work in England. In 1939, entirely on their own, except for the French, without the United States at their back, they went to war to protect the independence and territorial integrity of Poland. And now they are finding it unacceptable that as part of building a structure of peace in Europe that Poles could come to work freely in Britain. It seems to me that they have lost a sense of history. They have lost a sense of their, their, the, the European uh, mission that Britain has fulfilled, not just in, 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 in the 20th century, but previously going back to, uh, to the 18th and 19th century as well. Britain has always been involved in Europe. And now they want to turn their back on it. And I think that's something that's very risky from the point of view of their own security. This is central to a number of questions I've asked you there. Um, are we all forgetting? Are we all losing our sense of history? How do we stop ourselves from losing that sense of history. Um, I, I don't know whether it can be turned around in Britain. We, we, we got criticised here in Ireland for rerunning two referenda. But when we did, having in the meantime gone to the people to try and find out what, what the problem was, they actually overturned the decision. Do you see any possibility of that happening in Britain? I hope so. I hope it happens. I'm not particularly confident, but I hope it will. I, I think that it's only human to 
take a second look at a decision if you have an opportunity to do it. And it's only human to change your mind. I mean, politicians are allowed to change their mind. Making a law on the Oireachtas at a Westminster, it goes through five stages. It goes through five stages, and then the next year it can be amended if a mistake has been made in the drafting of it. But the way the current UK government is treating this is if uh, those few words in the referendum question are wholly rich and they have a precise meaning, uh, which they don't actually have, the current British government is saying that the referendum means that they must leave the customs union. That was not part of what was put to the people. They are saying that they must leave, uh, they must not join the European Economic Area if they leave the European Union. That was not one of the questions that was put to the people either. Mm -hmm. But the current government is interpreting uh, what the people decided in ways that are far beyond what actually the people were asked to decide or what was explained to them before the referendum. And I think the merit in having a second referendum would be that on the second occasion, people might repeat the same decision, but they would at least know fully what they were doing and they wouldn't be relying on sort of half-truths and some outright lies that were told to them uh, before the 23rd of June. Well, let's presume it does go ahead. Um, what do you see as the challenges and opportunities for Ireland in, in, in that scenario? Well, I think the challenges, uh, I think the downsides far outweigh the upsides. Uh, and I, 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 when you think of the possibility that we might have you know, long queues of lorries in waiting to get on in Dublin Port, waiting for customs clearance. Uh, you know, if it, it, even a minute checking the customs documents of a lorry could hold up sailings. I mean, look at the porous yes. borders with Norway and Switzerland and Liechtenstein. It is a real scenario, yes, mm. because uh, I think that they they will ha- they have to they have to check the rules of origin. Uh, well, in any event, Norway is part of the you know it's part of the European yeah, economic, yeah. economic area, uh, and what what they can check there is people movements. We're go- Britain is not going to be in the economic area, according to themselves. They're not going to be even in the customs union. And I would draw attention to the scenario that exists on the border between Bulgaria and Turkey. And Turkey's in the customs union. And they've set up a very sophisticated um, uh, system of pre-clearance and pre, uh, pre, um, pre-checking within Turkey before trucks get to the border of documents so that the border, the actual border crossing is smooth. But they still have delays of up to 30 hours. They have queues seven kilometres long waiting to get in. Now, we we can't afford to have that uh, along the border in Ireland. And even more important in terms of the, the, the direction of trade, we can't afford it to have it on the east-west corridor between uh, the island of Britain and the island of Ireland. Yeah, but we take we take more from Britain than Latin America and Japan added together. So, I mean, it's a two-way issue. And well, they'll suffer they, for it, yeah. but I mean, they, 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 they're... They're not going to want this either. The European Union doesn't want it, we don't want it. Is it a real Well, the European Union has to uh, make sure if it's to protect... See, once goods come into Ireland from the UK, and if they're coming in from the UK and UK has left the European Union, they could be coming from anywhere. They could be coming from China, Brazil. They could be coming from anywhere. Or they could be mixed in with goods coming from somewhere else in the world where we have tariffs or we have dumping duties or whatever. But once they cross the border, 
into Ireland from Northern Ireland or across the sea from Britain into Ireland. They're in the European Union and they can go anywhere in the European Union. So the other countries who may have needs to deal with trade from some other some of the countries that Britain may be importing stuff from to bring into Europe through Ireland will insist, I think, on controls uh, along the border to ensure that their jobs are not being destroyed by illegal or dumped imports coming into the European Union through the land border in Ireland or through the sea uh, from Britain into Ireland. You're very familiar with the Bruegel Institute and uh, the, the Brussels think tank. And, and they published a report very recently which said that 30,000 jobs in the financial wholesale industry would exit the UK and four what they called major cities, Frankfurt, Paris, Dublin and Amsterdam would would benefit from these. When we joined the European Union, we wouldn't have even been spoken of in those terms. So what do you see uh, as our opportunities there in the financial services well, I think I, 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 I think you're right. Uh, there, there are opportunities. I've just have been dwelling on the on the difficulties which are particularly to be affected by smaller, I expect smaller Irish firms and farming uh, activities vis-a-vis Britain. But there are opportunities on the other side of the leisure and one of them is, of course, to attract more of the financial services activity that's currently in London into Ireland. And I think Ireland will be attractive, has been attractive for Barclays Bank, for example, because uh, we are an English-speaking country operating a common law legal system, which they're familiar with from London. Uh, We will be in the European Union, um, whereas Britain will be out of it. Uh, we, our government will have a say in EU councils uh, when decisions are being made about financial standards, whereas the UK will not. So banks are going to want, I think, or aspects of banks at least, are going to want to locate some of the, more of their activity in Ireland. And that's going to create more employment opportunities. Now, obviously, we've got to solve our office space problem, our housing problem, our international schools, educational uh, provision has to be improved. All those sort of things have to be done if we're to attra- maximise the attraction of businesses here from, from London. But all in all, I would prefer to see Britain in the European Union and not to have this happen. Absolutely. But let me just put, a, put it to you like this. Um, Gary Player, the, the golfer, when he was at the top of his game, was asked... Mr. Player, does luck play a part? And he said, oh yeah, luck plays a part. Funny thing is, the more I practiced, the luckier I got. I I believe that this could be the greatest opportunity since the foundation of the state for Ireland if we prepare, if we address the sort of issues that you uh, have mentioned. Now, we don't want Britain leaving, but it's beyond our ability to influence. So shouldn't we really be preparing to make this opportunity something that we can... I think I think Fulfill. we should, we should uh, uh, and we should, and we have no choice but to do it. I mean, I think that truth is, as far as Brexit is concerned, we must um, prepare for the worst, but make sure we make the best of any opportunity that comes. And um, I think that includes what I've just been saying about attracting financial service here. It also, I think, includes upping our game diplomatically in Europe. Now, we are... We have a very good diplomatic service, but it's relatively small. 
uh, and we need to, you know, and we need the, the IDA and Enterprise Ireland to be even more active uh, in, in continental Europe and, and in promoting Irish interests uh, to ensure that in any arrangements that are made that Ireland's interests are looked after because the centre of gravity of Europe as a result of Britain leaving will move eastwards and we're on the western edge so we'll have to just run that big fat bit that bit faster to keep up we were in 73 we have John Bruton who's been president of the European Council and a whole lot of other people who yeah. have a lot of experience so we're, we're, we're much further down down the road can I ask well, you I do think though I, I'm not so sure though that we have uh, I took back 20 years ago or even 30 years ago I think there was more enthusiasm in this country for learning French for learning Spanish for learning German perhaps than there is today and I think you know our television and all of that has oriented toward us towards the Anglo-Saxon world more than it was then. So I think we may have to re-engage a bit more with continental Europe um, than we than we were, because that's where the big decisions affecting us are going to be taken, not in London or, or Washington. Yeah, strangely, I noticed uh, recently a lot more documentation is coming to me from Brussels in French. It's a, I just noticed a yeah. very subtle change. Can I just turn to to the world itself? In, in, the the broader world you mentioned you know the axis in in Europe moving eastwards but the population of the world is moving eastwards but within a generation um, eastwards and southwards Europe will be about six percent of the world's population now two weeks ago in the European Parliament there were three reports debated about how we will organise ourselves for this and even with the full implementation of the Lisbon Treaty there's some suggestion we might have a European commissioner who would be effectively minister for finance, closer common defence policy, which could lead to a common defence, the merging of the posts of president of the European Commission and uh, the European Council. Do you see that coming? Do you see more Europe, more? Do we need to do that to keep our place in the world? At the moment, um, there, the, I think that the majority of the governments of Europe I don't want treaty change because they've seen how difficult it is to get it through. We've had we have to have referenda here in Ireland under our constitution, but there are other countries who didn't have to have referenda, like the Netherlands and France, which had them just the same. Uh, and I think they would anticipate difficulty if they were to have a treaty change, not having a referendum as well. So there's a tendency to avoid um, treaty changes because of the risk that, you know, just one country can hold up a treaty change. This could be done by implementing the full Lisbon Treaty. Some of it can be done. A lot of it can be done by implementing the full, uh, implementing the existing treaty powers in full. And I think that's probably the best course to to follow. Um, I I think it's also... I think what you will get people to agree um, to individual treaty changes if they're put individually on their own merits and people say we're doing this because of this. I think you, you, there's a chance that'll pass even in a referendum in three or four countries. Where I think we're going to have difficulty with is a big omnibus treaty like the Constitution or the Lisbon Treaty where you have a whole sort of mixture of things, some good, some not so good, some contestable, 
all being put together in a package and people are being told, well, accept the lot or not. Uh, I think that that type of treaty amendment is not going to work. I think uh, individualised treaty amendments for individual things, like some of the things you mentioned, if they're necessary, uh, are the best way to go. But intergovernmentalism with 27 member states after Britain leaves, that really is a non-runner when we're 6% of the world's population. I think it is, yes. I mean, I think, I mean... If you think of 27 people at a meeting, all speaking you know, different languages because they will insist at the formal meeting and speaking in their own languages, not in any other language, the length of time to allow them all to even sort of clear their throat <laughs> at the meeting, 27 times, uh, you know, you don't have a sort of the possibility of collegiality. When I was president of the European Council, I think um, there were 14 of us or something like that. Now, that's just about manageable. Yeah. But 27, I'm, it's just too much. And similarly, I think we've heard the Commission has been criticised that it has become too much of a presidential system. Well, is that surprising with 27 commissioners? You know, you, you, somebody has to sort of make a decision. Uh, if, you, if you just have you know, a sort of a happening with 27 people, you know, very hard to get to see. Something we became very uh, attached to here, the, the, the commissioner for each member state was one of the issues that you remember in the Lisbon Treaty. But practically, uh, maybe when we look yeah. back on well, it... Well, we're fortunate, I think, now that our commissioner, as it happens, uh, has the agriculture portfolio and, you know, it's a very central portfolio and... It's one of the biggest spending. So, you know, there's no way that anyone can ignore that Ireland is present in that. But if we were to have some minor portfolio, and some of the portfolios are quite minor, you know, you'd really wonder how much influence they would have. We celebrated the, we commemorated the 1916 rising recently, leaving aside, you know, all of the issues involved. I I often think that uh, we've had two secretaries general of the European Commission one, one after the other. Yeah. Uh, the former Secretary General indeed is now doing your old job as ambassador for the EU to uh, David O'Sullivan to, to Washington. Um, we really have a role in the world. We really became truly sovereign the day we joined the European Union. I, I, I believe that. I think we also came out from under the shadow of the British, which I think was very healthy for them as well as for us. Um, uh, as you probably know, um, there was an unequal relationship between Britain and Ireland when we were both outside the European Union. No British Prime Minister ever came over here on an official visit to meet his Irish counterpart in all the time from 1921 until 1974. The year after we joined... He he came on 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 holiday. He came on holiday. his car on Merrion Road. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Fine. Well, more than welcome he was. But he wasn't here on official business. that's correct. Whereas... It is now routine for the British Prime Minister. Yeah. And the reason they're coming over here is that we are a member of the European Union and, and we, we have some influence. Yeah. And Ted Heath, uh, within a year of the uh, of Britain and Ireland joining the EU, was over here to see Liam Cosgrave in Baldana. And I think that symbolised the change relationship. And it was a change relationship which was much healthier for us and for them and which arose directly from both of us being in the European Union. And that helped create an atmosphere in which the peace process was possible. There was a level of trust developed between British and Irish officials and government ministers and so forth. The risk now is if we're on on, on opposite sides of what will become a very antagonistic 
negotiation. I'm afraid that's going to happen no matter how hard we try to avoid it. That is going to have all sorts of unknowable negative side effects. Or we'll just have to become the X and OXO. Let <laughs> me ask you a, pen- a penultimate question. Um, John, the, it's, it's 50 years since the Treaty of Rome. Um, we've had peace in Europe. The Berlin Wall is down. Uh, Ireland is a different place. Europe is a different place. What are your hopes for Europe and for Ireland for the next 50 years? Well, I, I expect the Irish population will continue to grow. There's going to be a lot more people living in Ireland 50 years from now than are living here today. Uh, I don't, maybe we will recover to the population we had in 1841, maybe not quite, but we're, we're, we're going to see in the 21st century uh, an Ireland that will have regained some of the confidence that it lost between, 19, between 1841 and, and 1851 because of the famine. I think there's no possibility of exaggerating the damage that all that loss of life and did not just to the lives lost, but to the confidence of the Irish people. And I think we've, we've, we've regained that confidence and we're seeing, and I think it's wonderful to see people coming to live here from other countries. I mean, anyway, what better compliment can be paid to a country than the fact that people want to come and live here from Poland and from uh, from Bulgaria and from other countries. That and they, invest here. And invest here. Well, come to live here too and to enjoy our society and create interest and diversity in our schools. I mean, this is a, this is a ter- terrific vote of confidence in, in Ireland and in the Irish people. Whereas for the previous hundred years, from 1850 until, you know, even until the 1970s, there was a constant flow of people out of this country, leaving, just leaving, voting no confidence in Ireland. We now have people from all over the world voting confidence in this country. And I think we need to sort of build on that confidence, recognise that it's due to a number of factors, one of which is the fact that we're in the European Union, but only one of which, a lot of other factors which have nothing to do with that. And we need to you know, build on that sense of, of confidence in our, ourselves. I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that the last 50 years have been the best 50 years for Europe. When you, when you think of what went before, I mean, we weren't better under the Hohenzollerns and the Romanovs and the Ottomans and all of those. What about the next 50 years in Europe? If we get our act together, where, where will Europe be? Well, I think the truth of the matter is that Europe is getting old. And it is, you know, there is, we've got to face up to the fact that um, we're going to have far more pensioners in continental Europe and far more uh, people, you know, getting the sort of routine ailments that people tend to get when they pass about, shall we say, 70 years of age. Uh, and that's going to, you know, slow the country, countries of Europe down unless we make, you know, great strides in, in, in promoting the idea of, of people continuing to work in some fashion or other uh, to maintain their health much older, to an older age than was previously the case. We need to improve the efficiency uh, of our health service so that people can be uh, cared for properly without you know, crippling expense and high taxation being necessary to pay for it. So that challenge is there. Uh, not so much for Ireland, because as I said, Ireland is a country with a growing 
young population. But it is a, a problem for some countries in Europe, Germany, for example, Spain, Italy. They have this aging population. Interestingly enough, France doesn't, for reasons that are hard to explain, but they don't. Um, they have higher birth rates, and they're more, more, you know, less of that problem. But y Europe is is going to, and also Central and Eastern Europe have had low birth rates, and they're going to have suffer from an aging problem as well. So. Europe, Europe has challenges, uh, and unfortunately, we're so uh, tied down in Europe at the moment with short-term problems, with Brexit and with uh, the refugee problem, and with the Italian banks and their difficulties, and the Greek banks, and Greece and its public finances. We've so many short-term crisis management issues to deal with in Europe that we're perhaps not thinking about these longer-term challenges that will creep up on us over the next 20 years as our societies age, unless we make provision to change the way our societies work. But at least now we have the institutions to come together and to address yes, those. Yes, and we, we, we have also increasingly, we're learning from best practice. I mean, the, every year the, um, the European Commission is doing a study, a comparative study of each European economy to see how they're doing and what, you know, what the Irish are doing well in this area of training or whatever, what the Germans are doing well in some other area. So that increasingly we can start to learn from one another and adopt whatever works best in one country to adopt it in other countries. And the future for John Bruton and all of this? Well, um, <laughs> I just keep going. I think I don't. I keep going as long as I can, as long as I'm allowed. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks very Thanks much. Thanks very much. Gay Mitchell meets a series of unique interviews with prominent people in public life. These interviews go beyond the normal soundbite and provide real analysis of issues in public affairs. Gay Mitchell meets is a unique media production.